But I think the broader impact was when I was invited into um, our national newspaper's um, boardroom <laughs> for a meeting, wondering what is this all about? Um, and I remember at the time the editor-in-chief um, said to me, you know, we've been reading a lot of your work and also hearing that you think we're not covering your community accurately, precisely, and with a lot of dignity and precision. Um, tell us what we're doing wrong and how we can do better. And that was kind of like a, wow, like, this is it. Like, this is exactly what we were trying to do. Get your attention and help you see that there is a better way to do this. Um, and so that, that I think was like a real aha moment for me that we were, we were onto something. Welcome to episode 81 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features Lakshmi Parasarathi, Chief Operating Officer at Global Press, an international media organization that builds representative news bureaus staffed by local women reporters in undercovered media markets all over the world. In 2006, she was named to Canada's top 20 under 20, and in 2020, American Express named her one of six next-generation leaders. Lakshmi and I discuss her multicultural upbringing near Toronto, her questioning why other areas were less diverse, underrepresentation in media, working in radio in Rwanda, how to meet audiences where they are, the complexity of launching global news bureaus, and much more. Here is Lakshmi Parasarathi on People Are the Answer. Lakshmi, thank you so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And it'd be awesome if you could start off by just telling our listeners who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Lakshmi Parthasarathy, and I'm Chief Operating Officer at Global Press, which is an international news organization. Uh, I'm based in Washington, D.C. today. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And in life in general, what would you say motivates you? Oh, I think a lot of things motivate me. It's, it's hard to narrow it down to just one thing. Um, but, you know, if I had to, to choose, probably... Um, general sense of injustice. <laughs> um, and I think for me, it's it's in particular um, a lack of representation or not seeing oneself uh, in, depicted um, in, in some mainstream channels. Yeah, no, I think that is a beautiful motivator. Um, certainly so much injustice in the world that we need to continue to fight against. Um, you know, I like to kind of get to know my guests and sort of how they started in life, because I feel that can often show their path to becoming uh, what I call an innovator and in impact. And so I'm curious, you know, where did you grow up and what was it like there? Yes, thanks for asking. Um, I actually love talking about where I grew up. Um, it is in the northeast corner of Scarborough in the city of Toronto in Canada. Uh, so I am a Canadian and I love where I grew up. It is one of the most multicultural, diverse neighborhoods you will ever come across. I think it's actually the most multicultural corner of 
Toronto, which is already an extremely multicultural city. Um, I mean, just so you can visualize this, I had uh, Sri Lankan neighbors across the street, Guyanese neighbors next door, Jamaican neighbors diagonal from us, Italian neighbors and Irish neighbors. So, you know, it was a complete um, tossed salad of so many different cultures. And I was, you know, it was it was really shared in different ways. Like I would drop off the the palau that my mom made for dinner at the, you know, Roger Rutnam's across the street and they would drop over the string hoppers that they made. And, you know, it was just a really fun environment to grow up in in that way. Um, and so I think I was at a very early age immersed in so many different cultures and um, international communities staying right on my street. Um, and I think that's pretty rare and unique for um, for an early experience. And that really kind of shaped my worldviews and shaped um, a lot about what I thought about the world. Um, and, you know, I think that also had me asking a lot of questions early on in life about why I wasn't seeing the incredible diversity that I grew up around represented in television, in news articles, in radio programs, <laughs> um, in movies. Yeah. And so I had a lot of questions about that pretty early on. I mean, wow, what, what a cool and good way to grow up, it seems, just to be able to have that much exposure right around your home. I think there, like we, you mentioned, there's not a lot of places in the world where you can get that. Um, and I, I'm sure it contributed to sort of your global view um, from an early age. And the idea that you were questioning, why am I not seeing this elsewhere is just incredible. And it makes sense, like why you sort of started off on this journey um, towards trying to fight injustice. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, at that time, you know, to be really frank, like, I just thought it was a really cool place to grow up. And um, I didn't really start to see the different perceptions and opinions about the place that I grew up until I left the community. So I think it was, you know, really when I, um, you know, started interacting with uh, other scholarship programs or, you know, other communities outside of my kind of neighborhood community where I started to realize that people would always say, oh, you're from Malvern. What is it like there? Not with kind of the best intention or curiosity, but really curiosity about the potential dangers that might come with that kind of community. Um, often it was represented as a place that was, you know, high dropout rates in high schools or crime or, you know, there's always another story about, you know, the same intersection where there was some gang violence happening at the time. Um, but that is such a myopic view of a really rich community um, that was socioeconomically so diverse, that was multiculturally so diverse. And, you know, diversity truly meant so many different things in that neighborhood. And I just felt like it was so poorly represented to the rest of the city of Toronto, yeah. to the rest of the country. And um, I was really frustrated about that. So yeah. it was, um, you know, it was just something that I wasn't necessarily experience and experiencing. And 
by no means am I saying that it was a perfect, you know, utopian uh, community of any kind. Um, we had our problems, just like most neighborhoods do and most communities do. But there was a lot to take away from it. And what I was seeing was all of the negatives and not kind of the whole story. And that's what I found really frustrating and led me to kind of bring together a group of others that were just as frustrated as I was about how our community was being depicted in both the national um, newspapers as well as national television. And we decided to start our own publication called My Roots. Um, and this publication ran for about 10 years. Um, it was a media organization that did a couple of things. We trained local students, uh, you know, adults, teachers, anyone that was interested in storytelling um, at the local library. We actually invited reporters from across the country to come do these trainings. We published a print quarterly magazine um, that was distributed in uh, elementary and high schools across the entire um, northeast part of uh, Toronto. And then we ensured that we were constantly sourcing story ideas from our community directly. So we weren't just kind of going out saying, this is what we think is important to cover, though we were already community members. We were literally asking our community members, what frustrates you? What challenges are you having today? That might be as simple as, why doesn't the Toronto Transit Commission, the TTC, bus allow us to get from our home to our mall to the mall without having to switch three times but all of those other communities get to get there directly well this is a really great question to investigate for any reporter so um, it was a really interesting um, exposure to sourcing ideas from the community mm. ensuring that there was real ownership in storytelling and story ideas from the community and therefore a lot more trust in the kind of journalism that we were producing and so we, you know, we, um, you know, launched this organization, ran it for 10 years. And I really do think that it changed. It really got the attention of both the national news, regional newspapers. And um, I think we we did what we could to try and change perceptions of the community. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a cool way to go about this this journey of trying to do things in this diverse, proper way in terms of tackling the media. And um, I think it, it doesn't seem like something that would immediately come to mind. Uh, but when you think about it, I mean, there's not a lot of lo true local journalism left. You know, we've got a, a great newly became a nonprofit here in uh, Colorado, where I live, called the Colorado Sun, um, mm -hmm. that has been, you know, really deploying locals to find out what locals want to know and i can imagine especially within a diverse community how sort of highlighting these frustrations of people and their perceptions can just go such a long way and giving people confidence in what they're reading or listening to absolutely i mean one of the early questions i always had is just um why do all of the bylines that I read in even just the Toronto Star, and this was, you know, in the 90s, um, why don't they represent the kind of diverse mix that I'm seeing around me? Why is it the same people telling stories about my community that don't actually represent it? Um, and I think we can see that at scale, in whether it's in Colorado, whether it's in, you know, any other um, 
state, province, etc., around the world where local news really isn't as valued. Um, but there are real dangers in the consequences of that and whether people actually trust people helicoptering into their communities. And I mean, especially these days, you know, and how divisive we've become and the news has become like these sort of weapons for different sides of the aisle. And it's become so hard to trust certain things. And then there's attacks against the media. And I'm just curious, given your experience, what you think of the current state of the media? Well, um, <laughs> that actually brings me to my, my current work. You know, I think... Um, there is certainly a better way forward. Um, and I think what we often do when we talk about the news industry is we kind of throw our hands up and say, uh, it's all just, you know, it's terrible. It's it's untrustworthy. There are bad practices, et cetera. Or, you know, it can be divisive in terms of, you know, we are pro this or anti that. Um, but what we've seen um, where I currently work, which is Global Press, an international news organization, is that I think a couple of things. One, there is a growing interest in higher quality international news um, that is locally sourced and produced. Um, and I can talk a little bit about the research that I've done um, that actually shows this <laughs> across the United States. Um, but also, you know, Global Press, we're an international news organization that builds independent news bureaus staffed by local women reporters in undercovered media markets around the world. And, you know, we have shown through 17 years of building these news bureaus how you can do holistic representation, how you can do really incredible local, locally sourced stories. So that means prioritizing the local expert over the World Bank official. Um, so there are a lot of practice changes that we can bring in to our industry to make it better one story at a time, but it really requires us to be a lot more self-aware and reflective about some pretty archaic processes <laughs> that um, have been you know, part of the industry for hundreds of years, but that we haven't let go. Um, and so, you know, that I really do think that global press is almost like a innovation lab um, and proof of concept for so many of these different ideas. And what I was doing at my roots so many years ago, um, I had no idea, but this is really what I was doing on a small scale. Uh, fast forward over to global press and it's uh, what we're doing on a global scale. Yeah, it's really, really cool to see sort of where the journey started and where it's going. And I'm excited to dig further into global press. But first, I want to understand a little bit more on how you got there. So, you know, when did you first leave the community you grew up in? And I, I saw you went to Carleton University. Was that when you, you left? Or? Yeah, so that was um, that's exactly when I first left. I, I went off to Ottawa, which is a very different city than Toronto, uh, much colder, but also um, in some ways not as diverse. Um, so, you know, it was a little bit of an adjustment there. And I think that's when it was it was really apparent to me that people had a lot of assumptions about where I was from. Um, and so that was, you know, really fascinating to uncover and to experience. And, you know, at the same time, while I was in Ottawa, I was exposed to some really incredible um, 
people that were trying to change practices in journalism in really unique ways. So some of the professors um, I was exposed to were, you know, had been foreign correspondents in Kigali, Rwanda during um, during the genocide and, you know, had really understood that actually we need to capacity build local journalists to be telling these stories so that I don't go back in and, and do the same um, or create the same challenges that that we did in 1994 uh, when we were helicoptering in and telling these stories in um, a way that, you know, could have been told differently. So that was really fascinating. On the other hand, I was exposed to the idea of media development, really um, investing in, again, local um, bottom-up media, uh, really investing in community-driven media, what that looks like around the world. And so a lot of kind of these ideas um, were starting to pop up for me. And I think that also helped me to better articulate what I was doing with this <laughs> news organization in my own community. I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants and didn't quite know what I was doing at that time. Um, but putting kind of these theories um, to my own practice kind of helped me paint a better picture of what I might want to do um, after university. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like you got some really cool experiences while you were there. And, um, you know, I saw you were the president of Journalists for Human Rights. You were uh, received Can Canada's Top 20 Under 20 Award in 2006. Um, these are pretty cool accomplishments at a young age. Um, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about them and just what made you so driven at that young age versus, you know, being a young person and, you know, and, and have, I'd say that there's so many people that at a college age aren't thinking about the incredible work that you were thinking about. You know, um, I have to introspect a lot on that, uh, and take myself back to that time. Um, you know, I think... I think it comes back to like this idea of injustice, but also building community around that. And I think if I was doing any of this work entirely on my own, it may have been my idea. Um, I, I don't think I would have persevered. I don't think I would have continued. I don't think there would be as much longevity in the news organization that I built. Um, I think it's really about finding other people that are just as passionate about um, the frustrations you have um, and about the solutions um, and talking about those solutions. And so I think that really helped the people I surrounded myself with, um, both in Ottawa and in Toronto. I was really, really lucky to have some of my best friends in the world also just as, you know, driven to kind of solve these challenges and um, wanting to do that alongside me. So I think that really helped. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, I had the opportunity at a very young age to see a lot of um, people that had just immigrated to this, uh, to Canada, not this country, the United States, but to Canada. And um, they were really hard workers. Everyone worked really hard. Everyone really kind of um, was community oriented, always still found time to kind of connect with others. And I think um, that also was, um, kind of instilled in me very early on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the attitude toward immigrants in a lot of our country is really frustrating. You know, my dad immigrated here, my grandparents immigrated here and, you know, so many people that are coming here for a different type of chance at life or an opportunity they never got 
usually have the passion and the care to work really hard, you know, harder than a lot of uh, people that are already from America. And it's just really frustrating. So I'm, you know, big on immigration rights and um, I, it sounds like you are as well. And uh, it's so important for people to recognize how much room we have for people that need a chance from elsewhere. Definitely. So I think that was part of, you know, what was really motivating me, but also um, what kept me focused. And I think in some ways, too, when you're much younger, when you're getting um, recognition for the work that you're doing, um, not that the recognition was driving the work, it was really helping me and my friends and family around me see that I might be onto something and that it's worth supporting. When you get that extra stamp of approval from an award like Top 20 Under 20, it's not about winning the award. It's about, one, getting more attention for your project, but two, getting the stamp of approval um, from an organization that says, hey, you're onto something and you're doing something great, keep at it. And so I think things like that are just so important for younger people to have. Um, when they are working really hard, because I'm sure there are hundreds, thousands of young people that are creating organizations like I did, but may not have had the opportunity um, to get the exposure that I did. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I think things like that can uh, breed tremendous confidence. And when you're working on something that, you know, isn't about money, and you don't have money to show as your success, it's important for others to validate your work and to show how much it's helping them in their lives. And, you know, I'm curious, do you remember sort of the first time you really felt like, wow, my work is having an impact? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, there, there are so many stories that we told um, that I can, you know, I can still remember as just, you know, people come, you know, people in the community just coming up to you and saying like, oh my goodness, thank you so much for telling that story. You know, um, a lot of people didn't know about this work that we were doing or, um, oh, thank you so much for um, featuring me as an outstanding student for the season because, um, you know, I never saw myself that way until you recognized me or, you know, little, little anecdotes like that. But I think the broader impact was when I was invited into um, our national newspaper's um, boardroom <laughs> for a meeting, wondering what is this all about? Um, and I remember at the time the editor-in-chief um, said to me, you know, we've been reading a lot of your work and also hearing that you think we're not covering your community accurately, precisely, and with a lot of dignity and precision. Um, tell us what we're doing wrong and how we can do better. And that was kind of like a, wow, like, this is it. Like, this is exactly what we were trying to do. Get your attention and help you see that there is a better way to do this. Um, and so that, that I think was like a real aha moment for me that we were, we were onto something. Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. And I like what you said about people coming to you that you did give a little bit of attention, a little spotlight to, I mean, that's Part of what I'm trying to do here with this podcast is shine a light on people that are doing good that, you know, oftentimes don't let the light shine on them. And, um, you know, mine is a small platform, but uh, continuing to grow it. And um, it when I hear similar things from people like, oh, I didn't think of myself as an innovator and impact, but, you know, they're excited to come on. And then I 
you know, you, you talked about having to be introspective to, to answer, you know, one of the questions about when you were back in college. And, um, you know, I've had some responses like that where it's like, oh, I, I never really sit down and think about myself. <laughs> so, yeah, um, definitely. yeah, I certainly don't want to make it about, about me and uh, this podcast, but I just, you know, your, your work is inspiring to continue doing that. Yeah, I, I thank you. Uh, but I, I do think it is podcasts like this or other um, spotlights that are that are offered that really do help. Yeah. And so what was your next step once you left uh, Carlton, once you were done there? Yeah, so I think um, one of the most eye opening experiences that I had and another kind of aha moment for me was um, after Carlton when I had the opportunity to actually with Carlton um, go to Rwanda. The professor I mentioned, Alan Thompson, ran a program called the Rwanda Initiative where he sent um, students from the School of Journalism and Communications over to um, Kigali for the summer uh, to do internships. And I had the opportunity um, little different than a lot of my colleagues, um, to work at a really popular BBC World Service uh, radio program called Urunana Development Communication. And we were, when I say highly popular, I mean, I think everyone in that country listened to that radio program. I would get dropped off on my motorbike at the office and the driver would say, you work there. Can you get me some autographs of some of the <laughs> hosts? Um, and so, you know, it was it was that popular. But really, the idea behind the show was twofold. It was edutainment in some ways, um, but it was also, you know, disseminating messages from the Ministry of Health, for example, to um, rural communities through the radio program. We also had these massive caravans that would travel every weekend. We would go out to um, you know, more rural areas outside of Kigali to host these large gatherings of people um, that would just come together for, you know, some kind of entertainment show. Um, but they would use that opportunity to source new story ideas or new topics or new potential documentary ideas. And um, I had an aha moment because I was like, that's kind of what I was doing in Malvern at a small scale. We would host talent shows to source ideas. And this was really kind of, you know, not just about the, the print medium or the digital medium. It was also about engaging people offline. And um, you can see the power of a tool like radio in Rwanda and the kind of impact that it can have. Um, it was just really abundantly apparent to me that I wanted to explore this further, that a summer wasn't enough. Um, and so I actually went on to the London School of Economics um, to study media communication and development, um, which is, you know, exactly kind of what I was already doing and not realizing I was doing this. Um, but we were really kind of putting a lot of, you know, ideas such as um, post-colonial theory, um, some of Guy Spivak and Edward Said's writings, um, Franz Fanon, to the media industry in critical analysis. And so it was really grounding for me. And it was really practical in some ways in terms of understanding case studies of, you know, projects that might have had really great intentions, but really um, didn't quite look at challenges holistically and kind of came in to help, but 
generally made the problem a little bit bigger. <laughs> so I, I absolutely loved that, that experience and that kind of led me into a myriad of other uh, media development projects. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like truly transformative. And, um, you know, after having such an incredible experience, what did that sort of push you or motivate you to want to do next? Um, so I actually went off to Swaziland, now called Eswatini, um, a small country uh, landlocked between Mozambique and South Africa. And there I was um, with the Canadian International Development Agency. Um, they have partner organizations across the country. And the one I was paired with was a the only, actually, gender-based violence prevention organization in the country. Um, you know, this is a country that is about the size of New Jersey. Um, and, you know, they have a lot of kind of traditional practices that are deeply ingrained in culture. And part of, you know, what we were doing there is ensuring that the media coverage of issues such as gender-based violence were more sensitively reported on um, because it is a pretty challenging issue to address when there are cultural and traditional elements um, to that challenge in the country. And so part of what we were doing is not just doing those media trainings, but also um, lobbying for a bill to be passed in Parliament, um, the Children's Protection Bill. And that that really required a lot of different things. Um, it required, you know, billboard campaigns and you know, newspaper ads and, um, you know, again, some offline type engagements and events. Um, and so I really kind of try to look at where do people access information? Um, how do they access information? When and where do they trust that information? And how do you ensure that um, the information that's being presented is something that's accessible to them? So are they listening to radio at 10 o'clock in the morning, then, you know, that's the, that's the airtime that you want to get. Yeah. It's a really good way to look at sort of uh, utilizing the ways that we know people are consuming the content and uh, making sure to say the right things at the right time. Absolutely. And uh, I saw you also got uh, your master's. Yes. So that was at the London School of Economics. Okay. Got it. Yep. And uh yeah, I mean, it sounds like you learned an incredible amount at all of these in all of these experiences, and you know, we we talked about my roots previously and and what you did there, and you know how you started to build truly representative newsrooms. And uh, when we talked about it, you mentioned how currently there's data showing that there is a lot more of this type of content uh, coming up um, and growing. And you you mentioned talking about your research around that. Yeah, exactly. So um, just uh, the, over the last two years at Global Press, we, well, really over the last three years at Global Press, we have noticed that our U.S. audience has significantly grown without us putting any kind of investment into that U.S. audience. We prioritize our local audience. So it was quite fascinating to us to uncover some of that audience data. Um, now what we just wanted to do and what we decided we were going to do is really better understand who are these consumers of international news in the United States specifically? What can we learn about them? What are their interests in this news? 
why do they choose it? You know, like, who are they? Because we're really not doing anything to invest in them. And, you know, it was fascinating to see that um, across the board there, first of all, I had a lot of assumptions going into this research um, that we undertook, but across the board, you know, I was wrong on so many accounts. Um, So we surveyed over 1,200 respondents, uh, you know, a combination of um, interviews and surveys and um, all sorts of research methodologies that our research firm, Goodwin Simon, um, conducted and what over 10 months. And so what we found was that one, there is a growing diaspora, migrant and refugee population here in the United States that's really hungry for something high quality about the places that they originated from, but they can't necessarily trust the news that's being told here in the United States. And at the same time, they can't necessarily trust what's being told back home. So there was a a really interesting kind of emerging um, population that I think is definitely um, underserved and can be better served and tapped. On the other hand, through and through, it doesn't matter whether, you know, we're talking on um, Republican, Democrat, you know, extremely liberal, extremely conservative, uh, you know, older, younger Americans, through and through, what we heard and what we saw in the responses was that people trusted the local journalist over the foreign correspondent. And so we, you know, we were just kind of shocked by this. It was, you know, even things like A-B testing bylines. So we might show a byline, um, someone with the name that represents, uh, you know, a community in Zimbabwe that's told the story versus, you know, uh, a reporter for the New York Times that's told the story about Zimbabwe. On first uh, request, or sorry, on first um, uh, questioning about the story, uh, the respondents would say, oh, yeah, that guy. And then on second question, we would say, well, tell us a little bit more about why that person um, is best to tell this story. Just needed 30 seconds more to think about it. Their answer was always, actually, well, she looks like she's from the place where the story is being told. So yeah, actually, I would choose her. So it, it also illuminated the concept of just media literacy. A lot of people don't know about what a byline is or what a dateline is. A dateline meaning that, you know, if a story is filed in London, it doesn't, and it's, you know, about Egypt, it doesn't necessarily mean it's been reported from Egypt. Um, It might be a a reporter sitting in London doing some laptop journalism. Um, And so there are a lot of these kind of practices in journalism that um, the average reader is unaware of. So we were really kind of overall extremely surprised by the interest in more locally sourced journalism. Yeah, that that makes total sense to me as you say it. And, um, you know, I'm curious, you talked about sort of some of the lack of understanding from the readers. Do we need to better educate our readers on journalism standards, or is that just not something you can do with the the audience? You can absolutely do it. And I think there are some amazing projects out there that are doing this work already. So, for example, Trusting News is a project based out of uh, Florida, 
And, you know, part of what they do is help news organizations really think through how they can be more transparent about their storytelling processes. You know, for example, um, take take what we do at Global Press. If you look at any Global Press journal.com story, you'll see that we don't just give the reporter the byline. We also ensure that the editor, the fact checker, the copy editor, the translator, any illustrators, anyone that worked on that story is listed on a sidebar in that story. That gives you a much more holistic picture of everyone that's touched it and everyone who's kind of been a part of the production of that story which tells you a lot about the story itself. Um, so it's very different than what you might see elsewhere. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's so true. You know, sometimes you'll see a very long, heavily researched article and it's got one name on it, when in reality, you know, there's a bunch of names that have touched it. And actually as a reader, it might give me even more confidence in what they're saying to see all of these names. Definitely, yeah. And I think, you know, other, other, other tools that, you know, we use at Global Press, like we um, have our a very large team of um, fact checkers, copy editors, um, translators, and interpreters, part of a network called Global Press Accuracy Network. So we want to show readers that we are investing in the accuracy of this story by employing all of these people to ensure that the final product that they are receiving is, you know, fully global press accurate. Um, and I think that's another thing that a lot of newsrooms have started to kind of step away from, um, kind of human fact checking to automated fact checking. And sometimes when you're doing local reporting and the kind of reporting we're doing, there is what we call a reliability gap between what you might be hearing from experts and officials at international institutions and what people are actually seeing and experiencing on the ground. And how you grapple with those two things is often through kind of human verification. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, obviously, talking about your work, your current work, Global Press has come up. And, um, you know, I'm curious just about the origins of Global Press, how it started. Absolutely. Um, it's a it's a great story. So Global Press was founded by Christy Hagranis um, 17 years ago in 2006. And the, the funny part of that is that I actually started my roots uh, in the same year. Um, so we we're doing things at, you know, different scales. Um, but, you know, the organization was really founded on this basic idea that local people could tell the story that Christy was trying to tell as a foreign correspondent much better, much more holistically than she ever could in a short period of time. Um, and so she had the idea of like, why not hand over the pen or the microphone or whatever tool that we're using in journalism to the person that has proximity to the story, the person that has the historical context, the nuances that are required to tell these complex stories about people and places around the world. Um, you know, why? Why really is it um, a continued practice for people to parachute into places for short periods of time to tell really complex stories um, during, you know, war, poverty, um, famine, uh, you know, other types of environmental crises, um, we often end up getting one type of story uh, and one type of narrative about a place. And so this idea that she had in 2006 
to start Global Press was really started with her own experience, realizing like, I'm not the right person to be telling this story during a civil war in Nepal. Um, you know, these these local women that I've actually been interviewing for days now um, essentially are telling this story and I'm going to get my name put on it. And so that seemed deeply problematic to her. And she she had the idea for what if these people had a little bit more training and a little bit more access to tools that we use in, in our newsrooms. And um, I truly believe that they can tell the better story. And so, you know, fast forward 17 years later, that's exactly what we're doing. We're building independent news bureaus and undercovered media markets staffed by local women who are telling incredible stories that are feature and investigative and that really help us see the world differently. Yeah, that is awesome. I love how you put it and just the idea of sort of empowering locals to tell their stories and giving them a sort of the ability to have a platform. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. Um, there's, I feel like there's a lot of areas in impact in general where if communities were provided with more resources, they could be a lot more successful at solving their own problems. And so that I think this really grasps onto that. I was having a kind of a talk about that this morning with someone. And so just this latches back to that for me, you're providing, you know, the resources to create uh, and build, build out these, these news businesses. And I think that it is uh, really awesome and empowering thing that you are able to do for these communities. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, you know, vice versa, it, you know, it's, it's really about the audiences that we get to serve with this incredible content, right? So, you know, someone sitting in New York City that knows that I hear there's some kind of conflict going on in Goma DRC, uh, but, you know, picks up a global press story and really better understands oh, this isn't kind of just a short-term conflict. There's a lot of internally displaced people in Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's not actually this just this one area. You know, it's multiple areas. And, you know, let me look at this incredible interactive map that Global Press has built to help me understand the movement of people um, in this one country. It's, it, and so really, at the end of the day, we are, we are serving our audiences with better, high-quality news. And we are doing that with professional reporters that are able to um, just better illuminate uh, a holistic story. Got it. Yeah, that is wonderful. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how is your content distributed? I mean, I, I, of course, there's the, the local organizations, you know, do, do other um, publications pick you up and things like that? Yes. So, you know, we at Global Press often say that the audience is our beneficiary. And uh, part of that requires us to really open up our doors and ensure that our content is available for free to all republication partners. And so we have both local and international uh, republication partners and just general news partners. And so, you know, if I if I um, break that down a little bit more. Uh, it's actually really fascinating. A lot of news organizations uh, kind of look at audience as just kind of metrics. Yeah, who's coming to my website? How many views? How many clicks? Etc. At Global Press, we're looking, we're approaching the strategy in two very distinct ways. One is 
hyper-local. So we actually distribute our stories to hundreds of local republication partners across the world in each of our coverage countries. And those are, you know, um, super hyper-local radio programs, for example, like Mishapi Radio in Democratic Republic of Congo, um, to Animal Politico, which is a more, you know, um, well-known publication in Mexico City. Um, but the idea is to ensure that for every story that we produce, there is a unique audience and we create a unique distribution strategy based on who we're trying to specifically reach. So, for example, we recently, or actually last year, we published a story about um, the use of mercury in gold mining in Harare, Zimbabwe. And our reporter there, Linda Majuru, who covered this, has ha actually has been covering this story over six years. Um, more recently, um, uh, came up with this investigative piece that showed, even though her previous reporting had really led the government to um, erect claim that they were going to eradicate the use of mercury in artisanal mining. They signed a convention, a UN convention called the Minamata Convention, um, agreeing to, you know, no longer use mercury and that it was unsafe. Um, you know, a local reporter is able to follow up on these stories, is able to follow through on these stories because of the long-term employment we provide. She's able to, you know, continue to follow a beat for a long period of time. Um, she uncovered that actually artisanal miners are one, still using mercury in their mining practices, two, have no idea that it's illegal to be doing so, and three, told a really incredible nuanced story about how it's not just about, you know, this is bad, people are using mercury in their mining practices, but that the economy in Zimbabwe is really suffering. And the, if they stopped using mercury in mining, this would take away hundreds of thousands of jobs from people. Um, and there are no better ways right now in the country to, to do this artisanal mining. And by the way, there are some pretty severe health impacts of using mercury in mining practices, as well as not just to the miners, but to the neighboring communities who drink the water that comes from um, some of these mining sites. And so it's a really complex story, you know, just when you're thinking about Zimbabweans, for example, that need access to this story. So when I worked with Linda on figuring out a distribution strategy for this particular story, we went as deep to figure out, okay, we want to make sure the story gets to minors. We want to make sure the story gets to um, certain public officials in the country. But let's focus on those minors first and the people whose water is being impacted by the mercury that is kind of um, making its way over to their communities. And so, first of all, we published that story in English on globalpressjournal.com. We decided we need to make sure that we have a Shona version of that story um, locally available, but also, you know, the miners that she was trying to reach don't necessarily read online or print news. And, you know, literacy rates are not that high amongst this community. So she said, best way to reach them is radio. So we decided, okay, we're going to set up a partnership with Zimbabwean Broadcasting Corporation 
She hosted a one-hour radio program at 11 a.m. specifically because that is when minors have their radios on at work. <laughs> and she asked them, when are you listening to radio? What shows do you listen to? And that's exactly what we did. We met them where they were. We didn't ask them to come to where we were to access our information. And so I look at that example as just you know one of dozens of examples just from this year alone of how we bring our news to the communities that need it most. So yeah. that's kind of the the local distribution strategy. Some of it's online, some of it's, you know, through partnerships, some of it's through, you know, radio, and some of it's just through conversation with, with communities. Um, and then on the other side, we also partnered, even for that story, um, with some international outlets such as or U.S. and European-based outlets such as PBS NewsHour. We did a video report uh, with PBS NewsHour featuring Linda as the reporter, ensuring that she got the byline for that story um, because it was also really important for people who are consumers of gold to really think about and question some of the practices behind where um, behind um, procuring that gold, but also um, how gold kind of moves across the world from one location to another. Um, so that was, you know, another strategy yeah. there. I mean, I love the the depth of thought that clearly goes into your distribution strategies. I think it goes tremendously long way in getting these messages out there. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. And, um, you know, I'm curious, how do you guys decide which locations to go to? Yes. Yeah, so it's, um, Global expansion is one of the coolest parts of what Global Press does. And, you know, the, the reality is we wish we could be everywhere in the world. <laughs> um, I think what's really cool is that the Global Press model can work in so many different places. Um, we look at media markets within countries. So, you know, I think a lot of other um, news organizations and, and media development organizations have a tendency to focus on one country as kind of one type of media market. But what we've uncovered in our research is that one country can actually have four different kinds of media markets. So a capital city might be an oversaturated media market, but several other locations might be news deserts. Other places might be transitioning political environments. And so we really look at how to diversely in, in a very diverse way, select reporters to represent each of those kind of those places um, within a country. But also in terms of selecting countries, you know, we often try to ensure that there's kind of equity across the regions that we work in, Latin America, Asia and Africa. Um, you know, we also publish in seven different languages. And so all of our news is also available in the local reporters language. It's very important to us. They actually don't have to speak English to work for global press, which is, I think, often a really significant barrier to entering journalism in many of these countries. And so some of it is, you know, really paying attention to things like um, what kind of access to high quality journalism does this country or community specifically have? What kind of barriers to entering journalism are there in these countries and communities? So in some places, you know, you might have to go to X or Y university or institution and get X or Y accreditation in order to even get a job as a journalist. And those tend to go to a specific, you know, caste or tribe or group of people. And then that perpetuates one dominant narrative. And so we really try to get under the hood of some of these challenges um, that then 
end up representing entire um, countries. And so that's some of what goes into our assessment in determining where where we go. Got it. And do you or someone from your team, you know, physically go visit these locations or is it all done remotely? Yeah. So what's also really cool about Global Press is we have regional teams around the world. So we have teams that actually um, are based in the region and are best suited to kind of inform us on what strategies or approaches we should take. Um, but I've certainly spent a lot of time um, traveling to some of these places, um, Mongolia, Puerto Rico, Mexico, to build these news bureaus, um, because part of it is also making sure that people understand that the global press brand is so different than other news organizations, trying to ensure that, you know, other news organizations in the country don't see us as a competitor, but as a partner. Um, and, you know, other journalism associations that might be working to uh, build a stronger and healthier media environment can be allies. And so part of the work that, um, you know, we've done in these places is to build a broader network of people that want to see better journalism in the country and um, can partner with us to, to do so. I imagine the process varies by location, but is there, you know, sort of a general process of launching a bureau that you could walk us through? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it depends on if the country already, uh, if the country um, requires us to publish in an additional language to what we already publish. Um, so, for example, when we were launching in Mongolia, one of the first um, teams that we needed to hire for was within Global Press Accuracy Network. We needed to hire translators and interpreters um, so that we could even just get those application forms out in the country. Um, and so that team was really critical. We also ensured that we had um, a local trainer uh, to, to work on our journalism curriculum, not someone who was, um, you know, just speaking English with our reporters. Um, and then you know, from there, once a training is complete, you know, regardless of whether a reporter has previous journalism experience or not, they have to go through our curriculum, our journalism curriculum on Global Press Institute online. It's, it's, uh, it used to be actually an entirely in-person um, training, and now it is uh, something that we've spent a lot of time perfecting um, online for low-tech environments. Um, and so they would have to go through this training program and successfully graduate. And as long as they graduate, they are guaranteed uh, employment with Global Press Journal. And so you can see how, you know, we have to kind of set up that training program, ensure that, you know, we have the translators and interpreters ready to go. We have, um, you know, the language expertise before we even begin kind of telling the stories. And so that process can take some time and, and even just researching and understanding, you know, Samantha Nesfield, our uh, director of global expansion spends a lot of time um, with the team just trying to better understand um, the nuances of these places and most importantly, um, what kind of media markets they present um, and, and what diversity really means in those countries so that we can really specifically target our recruitment process um, to reach communities that are often left out of traditional journalism jobs. And so a lot of work goes into to all of that. Um, and then, you know, we just have a 
some incredible reporters that have kind of grown out of these these training programs. And, you know, some reporters are unlearning previous practices from other newsrooms. Some are learning new practices, having been in completely different professions before. Um, but the beauty is really they're all being trained to be global press journal reporters. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable to hear about the incredible work that you're doing all over the world. And, um, you know, I'm curious, how do you guys, what's the funding model? How do you keep this sustainable? Yeah, definitely. So Global Press is a nonprofit news organization. So we are really fortunate to have um, many different philanthropic organizations uh, that support Global Press and have supported Global Press over many years. Um, and that is, um, you know, many, you know, um, journalism portfolios that we're in from MacArthur Foundation to Luminate to um, uh let's see, Humanity United. So there, there are many of them out there um, that we're really incredibly lucky to have support from. Um, we also have, of course, some um, individual donors that have been supporting Global Press and have been great supporters over many years. Um, so we are really, you know, really reliant on um, both, you know, our development team to fundraise um, and on these large institutional um, foundations. Um, now, that said, I think it's really important that all news organizations are constantly diversifying their revenue streams, especially in times when, um, you know, uh, donors or foundations might change their interests uh, in terms of what they are interested in giving to or or depending on is, you know, we're all looking at the economy and how it's performing. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really incumbent upon a lot of news organizations to to constantly be innovating in this space. Um, and so we launched something called Global Press News Services, which is our B2B division of Global Press that takes all the things I've been talking about, all of the really cool tools and, um, and uh, resources and practices and trainings that Global Press has been perfecting over so many years and offers it to other organizations that can really benefit. And so we offer um, really two key services, one around duty of care, which we actually haven't discussed, but is a really interesting aspect of global press. Um, it is our holistic safety and security program that prioritizes physical, emotional, digital, and legal security for local reporters when evacuation isn't an option. And that service, I think, is really transferable. We created a service around duty of care, both a roadmap and an implementation plan that so many organizations can benefit from when they're thinking about holistic wellness for their team members. And then on the other side, we have the Global Press Style Guide, which is a really incredible resource. It's free and available online um, at styleguide.globalpressjournal.com. And this is an incredible resource to help people understand how to, um, you know, write about people and places, prioritizing dignity and precision above being politically correct. Um, and so this tool is um, available for free online, but we also offer style guide trainings and workshops to organizations that are interested in um, just better language equity internally and externally uh, in their organizations and um, how to really think about the language that they use and the impact 
of the words that they are using to represent people and places. And so those services are revenue generating for Global Press, new services, and then that goes right back to Global Press. It's a small um, percentage of our overall portfolio, um, but it is something that I hope continues to grow. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's wonderful when organizations like yours also have their own revenue streams in addition to, to leaning, you know, on outside sources um, that can go a long way. And like you said, there's an opportunity for growth and you're providing tremendous tools. It sounds like I'm, you know, looking forward to checking out that style guide. We'll make sure to include the link in the notes. And, you know, you've talked about sort of all the various things Global Press is doing in various places. It's, it's really, like I said earlier, remarkable. And I'm curious, what do you and the team envision for the long-term future of Global Press? Um, so I think for the long term, I would love to see, and I think we're, we're kind of well on our way there, is um, how to scale the opportunities that we are already providing and the kind of journalism that we are already doing. Um, scale in the sense of not just for the sake of scaling more people, more stories, etc., but um, how we invite more people into these opportunities versus kind of doing, uh, you know, a few reporters at a time. So we see upwards of a thousand applications for just seven reporters that we can hire in any one bureau. But there are so many incredible, talented journalists out there, especially after the pandemic, that have um, not been able to continue practicing journalism and newsrooms that have shuttered around the world. And I think there's a real opportunity for us to bring some of these um reporters into our world, into our networks to offer trainings. And uh, I, I just think that there are so many more incredible stories waiting to be told. And I think scaling the way that we tell those stories through changing practices and narratives as, uh, in, as the outcome um, is what I can't wait to see more of. I Definitely hope to see that as well for you guys. And, you know, I'm curious, I, I like the way that you describe your practices. I, I love what they represent and, and how they're implemented. Have e either they approached you or you approached them and uh, major news organizations about like, hey, why don't you implement this model within your news organization as well? Well, if anyone's listening right now, <laughs> they should do that. Um, no, we've definitely had some conversations. Um, you know, I think PBS NewsHour is a great example of a news organization that is, um, one, really interested in sourcing uh, local journalism from the countries that we're reporting from and that are a great partner because they ensure that the reporter gets the byline, is featured, um, and that the story maintains its authenticity. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of reckoning that the news industry has to do with their own practices and that it's, um, and that, you know, we, of course, are here to offer both our stories, but our tools, um, if other newsrooms are, are ready to kind of self-reflect. And I'll just say um, the founder of Global Press, Christy Higranis, uh, just recently, today is her the launch of her book called Byline. Um, it's available on Amazon. And this book is all about how there needs to be 
practice changes in journalism and some of the consequences of not changing those practices. And so um, I highly recommend that people read those that book, uh, but also reach out to, to me at Global Press and uh, to discuss, you know, how what that better way forward means and looks like. Awesome. Sounds like a fantastic book. We'll make sure to include a link to that as well. Um, and we mentioned earlier how, you know, that early 20 under 20 award just added some extra boost of confidence that you're on the right path. Um, and then in 2020, American Express named you one of six next generation leaders. I'm curious, how did you reflect on that honor, you know, relative to that much earlier one? Yeah, I think, again, you know, you get to meet some really great people through programs like this that are also, um, you know, on their paths and trying to make their own change as change makers in very different industries and sectors. And so it's always inspiring to just meet others through these kinds of programs and initiatives and um, and know that, you know, there's a, a sense of community around you in uh, making the world a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely helps give you a push, I feel like, and certainly for me. And, um, you know, you mentioned in, uh, in my little questionnaire that we started that you were previously a professional Odyssey dancer. I'm curious to learn a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so Odyssey is an Indian classical dance, and it uh, originates from the state of Orissa, uh, it's a dance form I fell in love with uh, as a child in Toronto and spent many years perfecting um, with my dance school and, and dance company. Um, so I spent a lot of time, many, many hours a week <laughs> in um, practices, rehearsals, and uh, I actually used to even travel back from Ottawa to Toronto for uh, my shows and performances and uh, classes. And so it was a really, really big part of my life and something that I think, you know, that kind of artistic expression um, was so important to me for so long. And I think something that I still, um, you know, would love to tap back into at some point later in my life. Yeah, that, that's great. So how long has it been since you were doing that? Oh, gosh, it's probably been, uh, it's been a long gap. It's probably been a gap of about 10 years since I um, have been dancing. Um, it was, you know, definitely taking a path of, am I going to do this uh, for a long time professionally or, you know, off to Rwanda and Swaziland I go. Um, and so, you know, I had to make some some personal choices there, but I, I do think it's something that I I really do want to, to get back into and to connect back um, with. Uh, but I think it's something that just never leaves you when you've been dancing for that many years. It is yeah. really part of you. Um, and, you know, I was really privileged to have that experience um, for so many years and to um, have that aspect of my identity. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, super interesting. And, um, you know, we talked earlier about when you first saw that your work was really directly impacting change. Um, as you've gone on throughout your career, you know, working at Global Press, um, has there been another big story where it just you saw your work and what it was doing? You know, I think the cool thing about working for a news organization in particular is every day there is an incredible story on globalpressjournal.com where I might say, you know, I remember when we hired this reporter X number of years ago, and it's so incredible to see the six month long investigation she's just worked on. And, you know, 
rewind three years ago when she had just completed that training program, I, I bet she never knew that this is a story that she was going to tell. And I wonder how many people it's served. Um, you know, that kind of happens almost every day in our newsroom, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, and I think that the other really incredible aspect of the kind of work that I get to do is that, um, you know, so many organizations talk about, you know, empowerment and, you know, giving voice to the voiceless and kind of these cliche terms, especially in journalism and in development. Um, but at Global Press, we're really clear eyed about the fact that our reporters are incredible professional uh, journalists. And really, we are serving millions of readers around the world with our stories and they are benefiting by better understanding not just the world around them but their own communities in in some cases so i think that's a pretty kind of powerful through line yeah yeah absolutely i can imagine how that helps keep pushing through the work and um you know you've done a lot in your career you've learned a lot and i'm curious did you have anyone that was a particularly impactful mentor Yes. Um, so I actually, um, through actually top 20 under 20, I was paired with a formal mentor. Um, his name was John Hondrick, and he was the chairman of the board of Torstar Corporation, which owned the Toronto Star and used to be the editor in chief of the Toronto Star. And so it was first of all, hilarious that I was paired with him because uh, I had a lot to critique in terms of the work that they were doing. Um, but it was also incredible to see how open he was to that critique and to offering support to the kind of work that I was doing. And so um, it was, uh, I think, an unlikely pairing that ended up becoming um, a really lifelong relationship. Uh, unfortunately, John passed away uh, just two years ago. Um, but, you know, one of the things he always encouraged me to do, regardless of, you know, what organization I was working for, whether I was you know, growing in, in leadership or not, to just continue writing, to always write and to never lose that. Um, and I remembered reflecting on that uh, again um, just just recently and and how important it is that, you know, sometimes once we are, you know, managing teams and projects and people and organizations, um, we can lose track of what kind of got us there. And it goes back to, you know, the stories and uh, and writing. And so I, I, that's something I want to always kind of keep with me and advice that he has um, long held. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that he passed, but it sounds like, you know, you learned a tremendous amount from him. And in keeping with writing, you know, have you been doing that? And is it something that's publicly accessible? Um, so yes and no. <laughs> I did recently write this um, research uh, report that I shared, um, or I mentioned earlier on, it's called Unlocking US Demand for International News. Um, and that is available on the Media Impact Funders uh, website. They were our publishers for that piece. Um, and I do often write quite a bit about just kind of our our work at Global Press and the kind of um, insights that I've been uncovering. Um, but I certainly would love to get back to some more um, some more personal writing as well and have some stories up my sleeve. Awesome. Well, uh, if they do become available at some point, we look forward to checking them out. And 
now, if you'd like, you can ask me a question. Great. I would love to ask uh, a question, Jeff, um, turn the tables a little bit. Um, I would love to know, out of all of the different, you know, people that you've interviewed over um, your many shows here, what is, if there is one, kind of one similarity or through line in in these conversations that you're having um, with your interviewees? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And certainly part of why I'm doing this is trying to see like, how do people become people that care about others and, you know, as sort of their top priority. And I mean, to me, that is the through line is that there's true care about humanity amongst every one of these people, you know, I've had people from all sorts of things, you know, whether it's healthcare, education, drug policy reform, entertainment, you know, people on different sides of the aisle, but for every one of them, they seem to understand that, you know, we are all citizens of this planet together, trying to get through this together. And, uh, we can really all be helpful to each other. So, you know, I haven't, fortunately haven't had anyone on that is sowing divisiveness, but it's even so the opposite is just that regardless of their area of expertise or where their passion lies, uh, the bottom line is that they're bringing people together or, you know, making their lives better in some capacity. Um, so yeah, really just empathy is, you know, if I could, if I had to answer it in one word. I love that. Um, such an, such an important tool in, in our toolkit as change makers. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. It certainly drives me. Um, and it's something I appreciate in, in each of my guests very much. So, and, um, you know, I got a couple more questions for you almost done. Uh, so aside from your family, cause that's, that's the number one answer for this question. If it were all to end tomorrow, whatever that means to you, what are you most grateful for or most proud of? That's tricky. And I see why everyone says my family. <laughs> right. That's um, the number one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, I'm really grateful. I think going back kind of full circle to where we started this conversation, I'm really, really grateful for those early experiences that I had, the exposure I had to so many different people, cultures, and frankly, you know, again, this, this word of empathy um, frankly, like deep, deep empathy across our, our community and how that's really shaped me. So I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah, that I certainly appreciate that. And um, myself as a parent, and I'm sure others are curious, you know, what can we do to expose our children to better, more cultures, more diversity, you know, if we live in a more homogenous area? Do you have any suggestions for that? I mean, I promise that even if it's a more homogenous area that, you know, everyone has a story, everyone has some kind of adversity that they have faced. And I think um, having real conversations about that adversity or those challenges um, is kind of a stepping stone to building that that empathy. Um, and or that's what I truly believe is a skill set that is learned um, over time and practiced over time. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think that's it, that in like every pocket and of every community, there is someone or something that, um, might be a little different, um, and, you know, can use a little bit of that, that empathy. 
Um, and so I think that's where it might start in some of those communities. No, thank you for sharing that. That's a great way to look at it. And, you know, sort of the, the big question that I make sure I don't skip with any guest is this, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? You know, I, I think I would even combine two, the two questions to say that um, helping people, not just even young people, look at the world a little bit differently by absorbing information, um, consuming information, it doesn't just have to be news, um, in different ways than they currently are. Are. I think that can really change how we interact with one another. I think it can really change how we view different people and places. Um, and I think, you know, where and how we choose to make informed decisions about um, all sorts of things in our lives uh, is really, really important. And, uh, you know, I am a little concerned with the direction in which um, that is going. And I do think that that, um, not to say that we had it perfectly before, but uh, I do think just diversifying um, our exposure to all sorts of sources and really making great um, decisions and judgments and forming our own opinions based on a multitude of different um of different stories and uh, information it will serve the world better. I think that's something that you know parents can hopefully encourage as well. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And um, we'd be much better off if everyone had that type of exposure. So hopefully we are going that way. And you know, it's been tremendous having you learning about the incredible work that you're doing um, and just the ability to improve journalism around the world is really exciting. I'm glad that's going on. And uh, I'm sure I'm wondering, and I'm sure others are as well. How can we support you and your impact? Well, first and foremost, read our stories on globalpressjournal.com. I can't emphasize that enough because, you know, I guarantee you that you're going to get something very different than what you're reading elsewhere. Um, you'll get a much more holistic story. So that's the first step. And I think the second step is, of course, um, if people are ever interested in donating to Global Press, um, we have a donate button on globalpressjournal.com after you read those stories, if you are inclined to do so. Um, but I think beyond that as well, um, there are other ways that people can support Global Press by encouraging other news organizations to republish our stories or by, um, you know, uh, potentially even, you know, watching our media literacy videos on uh, our, our websites and really better understanding and unpacking the news um, also helps to ultimately accomplish our um, mission. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to dig into Global Press's work and read more of your stories on an ongoing basis. And, you know, thank you so much for your time. I uh, hope to continue our conversation and uh, excited to share your story. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. 
I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.